this evening, we are continuing our study of John chapter 7, and we are actually concluding the chapter tonight. And uh, as a quick reminder, uh, John's gospel was written with one specific intent, and that, that is that those who read it will believe that Jesus is God. Okay, so from the very first word in this book until its very last, every moment is meant to help us see the truth of Jesus' identity and challenges us to respond to that. And so the second half of this chapter is no different in that as it continues on from where we left off last week in the midst of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which was a harvest festival that was this joyous occasion celebrating the Lord's provision in the past and the expectation of the Lord's greater provision to come. And so in light of that, as we explore Jesus' interaction with the people during this very important festival, there are five truths that we need to explore. And those are, first, that everyone makes assumptions about Jesus. Second, that our assumptions don't tell us the whole story about Jesus. Third, our assumptions can cause us to misunderstand Jesus. Fourth, that Jesus invites all who seek eternal life to receive it from him. And five, how we respond to Jesus reveals our hearts. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you that we are here tonight, that we have this opportunity to learn from your word together and to hear from you through this text. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us in that, that place where we need it tonight, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would convict us where we need it, and that we would find greater joy and hope in you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin right at verse 25. Then some of the residents of Jerusalem began to say, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet here he is speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Do the ruling authorities really know that this man is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. Whenever the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he comes from. And so this passage that we've, that we've just read comes right after a debate about the Sabbath. And we see that in verses 14 through 24 of this chapter. And there Jesus challenged the assumptions of the Jewish leaders and the people that were around them about what was right and lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he did this to help them see that perhaps their understanding of the law wasn't quite as clear as they thought. But here in verse 25, the narrative abruptly shifts away from that debate and back to an earlier issue, this question of Jesus' identity. And this is a recurring theme that we've uh, explored several times in John's gospel so far, and it's one that we'll keep returning to because, again, that's the whole point of the writing of this book. John wants us to wrestle with who Jesus is, who he claims to be, and whether or not he is telling the truth. And so the people, the residents of Jerusalem, start asking these questions. Isn't this the man the leaders are looking for 
Why is he speaking openly? Does this mean that they agree with him? Do they even they think that he is the Messiah? And so as you read this passage, you can feel the conflict that, that's there in the people's questioning. After all, how could Jesus be the Messiah, the Christ, God's promised rescuer? After all, many at that time believed that the Messiah would be, in the words of one commentator, born of flesh and blood, yet would be wholly unknown until he appeared to affect Israel's redemption. But they knew where Jesus was from. He was from Galilee. And people who were there at the festival knew his family. And actually, his brothers were there at the festival at that moment. Jesus, in their thinking, according to their understanding of who the Messiah could be, didn't fit the bill. Or did he? And this is what we have to remember as we, as we look at our first principle, one that appears earlier in this chapter as well, but we're, so we're kind of revisiting it, which is that everyone makes assumptions about Jesus. No matter our background, no matter what we believe, we all make different assumptions about him. We all take these ideas, we take ideas about him into what we think. And so for Christians, our tendency is to assume that Jesus fully and completely aligns, aligns with our faith background or our theological tribe. So if we grew up, say, Southern Baptist or Presbyterian or Anglican, or if we're Calvinists or Arminians or something else altogether, that Jesus, therefore, must be those things too. And we might also assume that Jesus, some things about Jesus that make us fearful and actually doubt his goodness, that perhaps he doesn't really love us the way that the Bible says that he does, that even though Jesus has said that he will not lose any who have been given to him, that maybe, even though he won't lose them, maybe he'll toss us away if we mess up badly enough. So we live in fear and doubt about his goodness and his trustworthiness. And for non-Christians, those assumptions can honestly go in any direction. Uh, but generally, they, they usually start neutral and move toward negative. They're rarely ever actually positive. Sometimes they're based on bad teaching or the poor example of people who claim to follow Jesus. And we have to own that when we're responsible for that. They see him, uh, they might also see him as representing a cruel and vindictive sort of God, or that his love is entirely conditional or temperamental. Most today, though, and I can say this with a reasonable degree of confidence because I was this guy 18 years ago, most today barely give him a thought. They see him maybe as a mythical figure as, at best. Something that you would see, it's no different than, you know, Thor or any Norse god. Um, except, you know, he doesn't, and he even swings a hammer, so, you know. <laughs> but he builds tables, he doesn't, he doesn't can't throw down lightning. Anyway, um, <laughs> all, but regardless of, of, of where people are coming in, they're all like these people in Jerusalem during this festival who struggle to reconcile what Jesus says about himself and what they see him doing 
with their assumptions about him. And so as we, as we think about this, and, and as we prepare to move on in the, in the passage, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions today. What do we assume about Jesus? And where do these assumptions come from? Because we, we have to be honest with ourselves and with each other. We all make assumptions about Jesus. We do it all the time. And if we want to address those assumptions, and if we want to see God work in our lives to correct those things, it starts by knowing what they are. So that's our, fir that's our first principle, our first truth. And here's the second, because there is, there, there is another hard truth that we need to know today, no matter what we believe. It's that our assumptions don't tell us the whole story about Jesus because he is far bigger and better than even our best ideas about him. He is far better than our doubts and our fears and our dismissals of him too. And because he is so kind, he wants us to know that. So look at, so at that festival that day, whether it was through his divine knowledge or his simply being able to hear people who probably weren't using their library voices, Jesus began to press on their assumptions. And we see that in verse 28. He says, Then Jesus, while teaching in the temple courts, cried out, You both know me and know where I come from. And yet, and I have not come on my own initiative, but the one who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I have come from him and he sent me. So in saying this, interestingly, Jesus gives the people kind of affirmation. They were aware of his, his origins in one respect. Yeah, they knew he was from Galilee and they knew his parents, but he also was helping them to see that they knew less than they thought. They might know where he grew up. They might know his mother and brothers and sisters, but they didn't really know him or where he came from, and they didn't know the one who sent him. God, his father. And Jesus wants them to see that what they assume about him, what they think they know about him, isn't the whole story. And Jesus still does this for us as well. Because whenever we read the Bible, that's what's happening. And when we read it, I hope that we are encouraged by it. Because there is so much to be encouraged by in its pages. But no matter what we believe about Jesus, whether we, whether we are firmly committed that yes, Jesus is the son of God who lived and died and rose again for my sins, or I don't even know if this guy's for real or not, we should all expect to be challenged reading this book. It's going to stretch us as we th see things that perhaps we never saw before, as we read words for the first time that we might have overlooked entirely, and in some cases for years, as it challenges our assumptions about Jesus, who he is, what he is like, and what he expects of people who claim to follow him. And so no matter how long we followed Jesus, no matter how many times we've read the Bible, we need to know that we are never going to entirely figure him out. 
there will be always more for us to learn, to unlearn, and to relearn. And this should encourage us to be humble about what we do know and about what we think we know, which are not always the same thing. Because if we think we have Jesus figured out, we're going to be disappointed, and we're going to be confused. And perhaps, depending on our temperament, and depending on what it is, we might even get a bit angry. And so anytime our assumptions and our beliefs about Jesus are challenged, whenever we feel uncomfortable in that moment or even defensive, we should stop and we should ask ourselves, why? What is at the heart of my discomfort? What is causing me to feel defensive? As long as we are in this world, we might see the truth, but we can't see the whole picture. We see it as through a mirror dimly. And someday we will see face to face. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, we know in part, but a day is coming when we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And that leads to another question. What happens when we begin to realize this? When our assumptions and our most deeply held beliefs are challenged in this way? It helps us to see that we might not understand Jesus as well as we think. That, and that leads to our next truth, that our assumptions can actually cause us to misunderstand Jesus entirely. And that's what we see as the narrative continues. And so we pick up in verse 30. So then they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Yet many of the crowd believed him and said, Whenever the Christ comes, he, he, won't perform, won't, he won't perform more miraculous signs than this man did, will he? And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So we see that the people in Jerusalem were divided. Some, including the, including the chief priests and the Pharisees, they wanted to arrest him. And so... They sent the temple guards, who are basically a police force made up of priests, of Levites, to take him by force. But once again, for whatever reason, they couldn't even lay a hand on him. And, and when it comes to the, the earthly, earthly physicality of the moment, we don't know what's going on, but from a greater perspective we do know the reason they couldn't lay a hand on him is because it wasn't Jesus time there was a day coming when they would arrest him when they would put him on trial and they would even execute him and that was fast approaching but this wasn't the time it was not the time according to the father and son's timetable and so while some wanted to arrest him, there were others who were there who believed. They recognized that there was something more about Jesus than they originally thought. And whether that belief was uh, the sort that would lead to a genuine faith, the, the text doesn't tell us. But what they heard might force them to wonder if perhaps Jesus might be the Messiah they were waiting for after. And again, we have to remember that their understanding of the Messiah and what he was supposed to do was deeply flawed. They expected 
the Messiah, this rescuer, to be a political and military leader, a king who would overthrow the nations that ruled over them, one who would restore their status among the other nations. And while Jesus is most certainly a king, he's not that kind of king. He's not the kind of king that the people expected. And his kingdom is also not like those kingdoms or any other earthly one. It has no borders. It has no singular language. It has no one ethnic or national identity. It is a kingdom made up of people from every nation and people group of language, every language and background throughout all space and time, all united by saving faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so when Jesus said this to them, said to them in verses 30, 33 and 34, what follows here, I will be with you for only a little while longer, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. When he said this, they were confused. They misunderstood what he was saying because they didn't understand him. And so it continues in verse 35. Then the Jewish leaders said to one another, where's he going? Where's he going to go that we can't find him? He's not going to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks, is he? What did he mean by saying, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. See here, Jesus was speaking of what was, what was going to happen. His forthcoming arrest, the one that would lead to his death on a cross. Again, reminding us of the truth that he works according to his own divine timetable. He was going to be arrested. He was going to die, but his death wasn't going to be the end. On the third day, he would rise again from the dead, as the scriptures foretell, and as he had taught his disciples. But he wasn't only talking about his death and his resurrection. He was talking about his ascension and his glorification, his returning to his place with the Father. And John gives us a little hint of, about that um, in a few verses. He's talking about how he, God the Son, was going to resume his place with the Father outside of creation. So Jesus, again, was challenging their assumptions about him. And the people, including the religious leaders, likewise misunderstood. They heard his words as meaning perhaps that he was going to leave Judea and instead, of, instead begin teaching the Jews dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Perhaps he might even go and teach the Greeks, those who may have been converted to Judaism or perhaps even the ones who had no idea about it at all. Now, there's an irony that's, that's here, of course, because this is exactly what Jesus did, just not in the way that they described. After his ascension, after he returned to the right hand of the Father, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to empower his disciples who took the gospel out into the entire world to the dispersed Jews, to the Gentile converts, and also to those who did not yet believe at all. And that's the reason why any of us are here today. If that hadn't happened, 
we wouldn't be in this room. We wouldn't be talking about Jesus at all. We don't know what we'd be doing. Um, probably not hanging out while it's raining. But, you know, this is, this is the thing. And they couldn't see this because their assumptions and their unbelief blinded them to it. And their problem is often our problem still today. Our assumptions about Jesus cause us to misunderstand him and define his work in ways that, we may, that he may not define. But this truth that we see in this passage should encourage us, again, to be humble in our attitudes and in how we express our convictions, to be good listeners, even as we advocate for our perspectives, to be curious and discerning people. And how do we do that? Well, it, it really comes down to asking good questions. I mean, imagine how many misunderstandings could be resolved if we just asked a simple question like this. Can you help me understand where you're coming from? And genuinely mean it actually wanting to understand other people helps us to know them better. And the same is, and it helps us to fulfill our mission in this world more effectively. And as we begin, as we jump into the next section of our passage, because this isn't all we've got to see tonight. So we jump into this next section. There's a bit of a time jump as the feast enters its last day its greatest day, it says. And, the uh, and central to this last day, something that Dustin explained last week, was a particular ceremony, a, a water rite. And so as a quick refresher or a first time, if you weren't here, during, uh, during the feast, the priests filled a golden container with water from the pool of, of Siloam. And on the last day of this festival, it was carried back to the temple in, in a procession that was led by the high priest and there, and in this procession, there were joyful blasts of trumpets as it passed through the water gate of the temple into the inner courts. And, there, and the temple choir was singing Psalms 113 through 118. And as, it, as they reached that last psalm, the pilgrims who were visiting Jerusalem would shake these, these things called lulabs, which are uh, these bundles of willow and myrtle twigs that are bound with palm branches, and they would hold one of those in their right hand, and they would also hold a piece of citrus fruit in their left, and as they did this, they would, they would shout, give thanks to the Lord. And when it came time to bring the water to the altar, another priest also brought an offering of wine, and the two were poured out before the Lord and mixed on the altar. And that, and as all of this was happening, that's when Jesus stands up once again and he shouts in verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. And John gives us a little bit of a clue of what he's talking about in a parenthetical statement, which is in verse 39, which says, now he said this about the spirit whom, whom those who believed, uh, who believed in him were going to receive, for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So why did Jesus do this at this particular moment as the ceremony was reaching its climax? 
Well, this ritual was one that was filled with expectation of longing for the Lord to fulfill his promises and to restore the fortunes of his people. And so Jesus, using words that would have reminded his hearers of those uh, from the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah of the spirit being poured out on God's people said, hey, this ceremony is fulfilled today and I am its fulfillment. The shadow that it is, is giving way to substance. Come to me and receive the true water you seek and God's spirit will be poured out on you. And here we have what might be the most important truth in this entire passage. And it's one that we've come to time and again in this gospel. Jesus invites all who seek eternal life to receive it from him. With his declaration, Jesus is once again unambiguously telling the people his identity. He's revealing his purposes in the world. He is the one who provides for their greatest need. And he invites all to drink of the water that gives life, to believe in him and not in a superficial way. So not believing in him for what he can do, for the signs that he can perform, but because of who he is, the one who gives life. And this is the invitation that he still offers today to all of us, no matter our background, our past or our present, our ethnicity, our heritage, none of it matters. Jesus invites all who seek life to find it in him. He says, if you are thirsty, come to me. Believe in me and drink. And so maybe that's where, where some of us are at tonight. You're hearing Jesus' invitation. You're realizing that it's for you. And if that's the case, now is the time to receive that gift that he offers. The water that truly satisfies. The eternal life that he gives us as we turn to Jesus. The one who took the punishment that we all deserved through his death and overcame death by his resurrection. The one who pours out his spirit on all all who believe to equip and empower us to live faithfully in this world while we wait for his return. And for those of us who have heard Jesus' invitation and have received this from him, there's a call for us in these words for, for us as well to continue to see the goodness of this invitation, to celebrate it and to share it with others. That's why in part, why Jesus sent his spirit, not simply to comfort and assure us, although he does that, but to empower and equip us to go out into all the world and share the good news of Jesus with all who will hear, and even those who won't. Jesus invites all who seek eternal life to receive it from him. Now, if this passage were a made-for-TV movie or maybe, an, maybe a very special episode of a sitcom from the 80s, um, you know, you can go full house on this and, you know, Danny Tanner sitting down on the, on the bed with one of the kids and, and having a heart-to-heart -heart after a hard day and they have some ice cream after. This is where you would expect to see all the people who were there 
fall on their knees with joy and believe. This would be the mass revival of all mass revivals, the likes of which none could imagine. But one of the ways that we know that the Bible is true is because of the way it portrays people's reactions to Jesus and to his teaching. And as was the case earlier in this chapter and in every other chapter that we've seen so far, Jesus' words caused division. Now listen to verses 40 through 44. When they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But others said, but still others said, no, for the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Don't the scriptures say that the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was division in the crowd because of Jesus. And some were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So the people heard Jesus, and immediately they were drawn back to that challenge that they faced that we talked about in verse 25. They were divided over his identity and their assumptions about who the Messiah was and who the Messiah could be. And this division wasn't just with the people at the festival. It was among the religious leaders as well. And we see that in verse 45 and following. Then the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why didn't you bring him back with you? And the officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, you haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the members of the ruling councils or the Pharisees have believed him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, Our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears from him and learns what he's doing, does it? And they replied, Aren't you from Galilee too? Are you? Or you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully, and you will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. The response, to put it lightly, from these men was harsh. And it's tempting to write them off in their harshness as being, well, kind of dummies. But we've got to remember that these were not unknowledgeable men. The religious leaders, the ruling leaders of of the Jewish people, they were raised from their earliest years to know, study, and teach the law of Moses. They knew the scriptures, at least to a certain extent, even if they denied and rejected its ultimate message. But that in itself, along with their harsh judgment of people as uneducated rabble, not very pastoral there, let's just say that, that reveals something about their heart. It reveals their hard-heartedness, their lack of faith. They didn't believe not simply that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that he could be the Messiah. And nothing Jesus did, and not even the words of Scripture, could convict them otherwise. And in fact, so hard-hearted were they that they even twisted Scripture to try to assure themselves that they were in the right. Because, here's the truth, when they said that there was sold Nicodemus, go and search the scriptures and you'll see that there was no prophet who came from Galilee. They were lying. Because there was one, at least one, 
who came from Galilee. His name was Jonah. He was the prophet that was sent to the city of Nineveh, who was swallowed by a great fish and was spit out onto dry land after three days in its belly. This was the same prophet that when people demanded a sign of Jesus in Matthew 20, 12, verses 38 through 41, Jesus pointed to. And he said, after saying, an adulterous generation seeks signs. And he says, therefore, no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented when Jonah preached to them. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Their response helps us to see the final truth of this passage, that how we respond to Jesus reveals our hearts. And that's true of both Christians and non-Christians alike. When our assumptions are challenged and when, uh, when Jesus uh, when, when the Jesus of our mind is different than the Jesus of reality, we have two choices that we can make. First, we can respond as the religious leaders did. We can dig in our heels, and we can reject the truth that brings life. Or, we can respond in faith, even when it's difficult, even when it might hurt even when it might cause us problems, even when it requires us to do so saying, Lord, I don't understand fully, but I want to. I believe, help my unbelief. How we respond to Jesus reveals our hearts. And so as we, as we prepare to uh, close tonight, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that we would do so in faith, trusting that as Jesus challenges our assumptions, as he reveals where we might not have the full story, where we might misunderstand him, that we will find a bigger and better picture of Jesus, the one who says to us all, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of this invitation from Jesus that, that he gives life to all who seek him and that, they, and that those who seek him are the ones that you are drawing to him by your power. God, I pray that you would draw everyone in this room closer to you through Jesus tonight, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly and rejoice in the beauty and majesty of who he is so that we can be good news people in this world who can share that 
picture of Jesus with those who need it. God, thank you that you that you love us, that you that you loved us in our hard-heartedness and our stubbornness and our refusal to see the truth and that you helped us to see it. Help us to continue to see more clearly today, tomorrow, and every day forward the goodness of Jesus and the truth of your word and the beauty of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.